together in the name of our Lord Jesus and share in the wonderful opportunity God gives us for gathering as a community of believers, as a family. And as a family, it's been an emotional week for our church family, our departure of Bo Gill to be with the Lord, the departure of Miss Myra Ortigo to be with the Lord this morning, the departure of Mr. Jimmy D'Amica to be with the Lord. In a very, very emotional week, a good report came in for me, and I rejoice in, in that. But my dear brother Harry Eagles uh, didn't get a good report, and uh, we were, we were uh, grieved with him and Mary and their family. So it's really been an emotional week, and it's a, it's a great week to think about joy and our source of joy. I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things for me. Uh, the first is I would like something from you by email. My email is on the bulletin, bardmwalk at gmail.com. I would like your definition of joy. That's what I want from you. And permission to share it. Okay? So if you email it to me, I, uh, I may share it. So, uh, uh, But your definition of joy. Now, I don't want you to go to the Internet and look at somebody else's uh, and then give me theirs. I'll be sharing some that I've found out there in Internet land and uh, some good and maybe not so good definitions of joy. But I would love for you to sit down before the Lord and, and in prayer and in thought and just say, okay, this is what I think joy is. And maybe as long as a paragraph, um, I don't need a thesis, uh, um, uh, uh, and, and, uh, but, but maybe as much as a paragraph or a sentence, or you may just give me one word that will define it for you. And I would love to have that uh, maybe by Wednesday and uh, use it in preparation for the coming weeks and particularly for next Sunday as we talk a little bit about the definition of joy. So that would, that would be great. I would, I would love to, to have you send that out. I also just want to come back to you one more time and say thank you for all you've done for my family. We really, uh, when, when we got the report on Friday that my first blood work came back uh, with what's called an undetectable reading. That's a good reading. Um, and we we rejoiced, and I think it set in on us how much this has been affecting us as a family and how heavy it's been. Kind of, we're going to the Lord and we're praying and we're rejoicing in the things that He has done and is doing and will do for us. But at the same time, we realize how strongly this has been running as a background or an undercurrent in our family and in our minds and our hearts. So uh, if we've lacked in anything in the last weeks in, um, in, in our ministry towards you, please be patient with us because we've realized it's really taken a toll on us personally and, and, and it's exposed our weaknesses. We, we are weak and we don't like those to be exposed, and, but this has. And so uh, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your generosity and all the things. And I included that. If you did not receive that email, email me and I'll forward it to you. We send out to everyone that we can connect with. But we found often when we do those mass emails that sometimes your filter with your particular service will block it. 
And so if you didn't get that, send me a note and I'll send it to you from my personal email. So we're, we're talking about joy today and we're talking about the joy of serving and we have a really interesting introduction to the book of Philippians. I don't know how you introduce yourself to people. I often hear people introducing themselves and we kind of get our name and sometimes where we're from and, and often we get what we do. Um, and especially in conversations after an immediate introduction, that's some of the things we'll ask each other. So what do you do? And so then we kind of identify ourselves by what we do. And so there's kind of a, this is my name, this is where I'm from, and this is what I do. And we realize often that our, our what we do is at least a slice of, sometimes properly and sometimes improperly, a slice of our identity and who we are. And sometimes we're happy to tell what we do because God's given us a particularly neat thing to do. And sometimes we're reluctant to tell what we do because somehow we think that if we tell what we do for a living that somehow someone may look down on us because our occupation or our profession has a less glorious, less attractive, less thing-to-be-celebrated kind of thing. I've even noticed it kind of creeping in in the last 20 years that it's harder for a mom who stays at home to identify herself as a homemaker or a stay-at-home mom. Uh, and, and I've often heard that really crazy question asked to stay-at-home moms where somebody says, Do you work? <laughs> I've stayed at home in Sherry's place before, and I promise stay-at-home moms work hard. <laughs> It's kind of crazy. As Dr. James Dobson says, uh, the grass is not only not greener on the other side of the fence, I think it's inedible. And so uh, so there, there's this tie to our identity uh, with our, our job. And so Paul, when he introduces himself in his letter, says something that I don't know if we would say or gladly say or say in the way that he says. He says, Paul... And Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. This is who we are, and this is what we do. Could you imagine that being your introduction to somebody? Hi, my name is Bart, and I'm a bondservant. I'm a slave of Jesus. Hi, I'm Bart, and I am a servant, a servant of Jesus. But Paul evidently thinks highly of this because he identifies himself this way openly and freely, not just in this letter. In other places, he calls himself a bondservant of God or of the gospel. And so Paul happily shares that this is who I am and this is what I do or what I am. I'm a bondservant. Now, in Paul's day, the word bondservant had a bit of a range of meaning but there were limitations on that range. It did mean that there was sort of a commitment in which either by choice or not by choice, you had lost your freedom and your, some of your self-determination. And so when you identified yourself this way, you were admitting, 
I actually have someone whose will supersedes mine. So that I don't get to exert my own will in the decisions I make with my life. It is subservient either by choice or by force or by circumstance. Sometimes a servant was a captive from another country as a result of war. Sometimes a servant was one who had made the choice to serve someone to relieve a debt. Sometimes they were a servant because they had a debt and it was commanded by the legal system in Rome that they become a slave to remedy that debt. And so there was a range of experiences in a person who identified themselves as a bondservant, but the thing that was common was their will had been relinquished to the will of another, either by force, circumstance, or choice. And so Paul identifies himself as a man who serves someone else. And so there's a joy in it. And I want us to kind of ponder that joy today and uh, see if we can't get to a place where we understand why Paul considered being a servant a matter of joy. So let's jump in and remind ourselves from last Sunday three things about Christian joy. First, Christian joy is related to faith. We look to certain objects to give us joy because we believe or we think that they will deliver joy to us. And so faith is that we trust in some object to deliver joy to us. So we look to that object in some kind of hope. We do it when we think about a vacation or a getaway or a recreation. We even occasionally, we're learning better in Louisiana about this, we sometimes do it about football. Not much joy there, but we do keep going and watching in hope of that joy. Often to find it's not delivered. But most of the things that we do in life have some tie or connection to the belief that the object or objects we are pursuing will deliver joy to us in some way. It leads to addictions. It leads to bad decisions. It leads to pursuits that are disappointing. But we do it anyway. And that's why it's a matter of faith. We look to things because we think that somehow happiness or joy can come from them. Sometimes rightly so and sometimes sinfully so. And so it's related to faith because we don't pursue things apart from the hope that they will deliver something to us. And that's just how life works. Second, we realize that Christian joy is related to fruit. That true abiding joy is something that comes, John 15 tells us, that it comes from abiding in Christ so that Jesus says these words I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have joy, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And so we see that Christian joy is a, is a result of an abiding relationship with Jesus wherein the Holy Spirit dwelling in us produces the fruits we find in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We see that those, those aspects of the fruit of the Spirit come together in our lives. And so it's a matter of fruit. 
the fruit of abiding in Christ and having the indwelling nature of God in us, producing in us what is in Him. And then we also found that Christian joy is related to the future. All the way through the Bible, from the point of the fall in Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation, there is this future hope laid before us, constantly, constantly laid before us as something we look to. And there is the hope that in that there will be joy. And so we pursue it. Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy where he says, there is laid up for me in the future this crown of righteousness. And so there's this idea that he's trusting in God for an ultimate fulfillment. He's possessing the fruit of that fulfillment now with a joy that helps him move that direction. But he knows that in the future that joy is going to be consummated. It's going to be brought to its fullest. So that's how joy works. It works as a matter of faith. It works as a matter of fruit. And it works looking toward the future. So Paul is going to teach us some things about this joy. So let's kick off number one. Joy is found in whom we serve. Joy is found in whom we serve. Paul identifies whom he serves. He says we are bondservants of Messiah Jesus. He calls Him the Savior. He calls Him the Rescuer, the Deliverer, the Hope of Israel, the Hope of the Nations, the Hope of of forgiveness, the hope of glory. And here he identifies whom he serves. He serves Jesus. I want to break the options for service down into four parts. There are really only two. Bob Dylan was right. But we'll talk about him in just a moment. How many of you remember his song, Gotta Serve Somebody? Any Bob Dylan fans here? Wow, y'all just really, we need education. In Bob Dylanism, great song. You got to serve somebody. Uh, this song kind of encapsulates this idea. There've been several remakes of it. Nicole Nordeman has done my favorite one on one of her albums. It's a tremendous remake of the song. The options for service really are four. Here we go. First, self. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, do nothing from selfishness. Serving the self is the most common avenue of service in the world. It's what we're born wanting to do. We are self-serving from birth. And that can grow into all kinds of ugliness And it is very disappointing because we do not have the capacity to make our own selves happy. So the harder we work to serve ourselves, the less satisfied we become. And the more demanding we actually become. The less joyful we are. Paul also talks about the second place that we can serve is sin. He talks about that in Romans 6. Can you join me there for just a moment? 
at some point in our study, I'm going to really camp here and spend a lot of time in Romans 6. Today won't be that day, but I do want to talk to you a little bit about how Paul lays out the service of self and sin in Romans chapter 6. He starts the chapter with an introduction by saying, are we to go on sinning since we're under grace and not under law? A lot of folks have this crazy idea that because you're saved or you had a religious experience or you joined the church or you say that you're a Christian or that you got baptized, that somehow you can go on and just do whatever you want to because you're under grace and not under law. And therefore, since you're under grace, God's going to forgive you anyway, so you might as well do whatever you want to. And Paul says that's just really a lie. Because he lays out how service really works. Come with me to chapter 6, verse 12 in the book of Romans. Now, he's going to talk about sin. He's going to talk about the body. And he's going to talk about unrighteousness. So watch how he unfolds this in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign. So he's already using some terminology of a master-slave relationship. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey. There's another master-servant relationship. You're obeying someone. You should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. Now, this idea of presenting is the idea of a servant standing in front of his master saying, I am here at your service. I'm, I'm here. What did you ask of me? Did you call? Did you ring? Did you, did you um, invite me into your presence to ask me to do something? So the idea of presenting yourself is the idea when a master calls out a servant's name and the servant shows up and says, here I am. What do you want me to do? So that's where the idea of present is. All the language here is the language of servitude. Everything in Romans 6 is about that. So he says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So here you are. You're presenting yourself to sin. Sin's the master. Sin's the, the, the ruler. And you're the slave. You're working for sin. So you identify yourself. Hi, I'm Bart. What do you do? I work for sin. Really? It would be a great admission if we'd just all get up one day and say that and be honest about the struggle here. I work for sin. He says, But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. So the language here is the language very clear. Jesus said it. He who commits sin is a... Who remembers? A slave to sin. John 8. He who commits sin is a slave to sin. And so there's this set of masters, self. And if I'm serving myself, I am fundamentally serving sin. And so he goes on and says, verse 15, What then shall we sin because we're under law, but uh, not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey? Paul just boils it all down. He says basically there's something going on where a master is calling your name. 
He's calling you into His presence. And you are arriving in His presence. And you are presenting yourself as a slave to obey the Master. And so what Paul says is, sin knows your name. And He calls out to you. And when He calls out to you, and you show up and you say, Hello, Master. I'm here to obey. What He says is, you're a slave at that moment to the one you say yes to. So Paul says it shouldn't be that way. What should it be like? He says, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient to from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So now he's turned it around and he says, and he kind of boils it down in verse 22 of the same chapter, but having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. Okay, what's being said there? Your natural state in which you were born, my natural state in which I was born, is that I was a slave to sin. And I presented myself to Him as a slave for obedience. And if I have been born again, I have been freed from having to say yes to sin so that I can say yes to God. But if I'm saying yes to sin, I'm actually going to one level higher. So work through this. I am self-serving from birth. I am sin-serving from birth. And ultimately, as a result, number oh, letter C, I'm serving this guy. That's why when Jesus had this discussion in John 8 about spiritual parentage and the actions that follow it, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Because if God were your Father, you would love me. So, when we are serving self and serving sin, we are ultimately serving Satan. And I put a question mark at the end of each one of these because the title of the line is, Joy is found in whom we serve. Do I really find joy in self-service? Do I really find joy in sin service? And do I really find joy in Satan's service? The answer is, often Temporarily, yes. If sin was zero fun whatsoever, we would not have any compulsion toward it. We just wouldn't. If if there was no immediate gratification in the whole deal, I mean, we'd just walk away from it and say, I don't like that stuff. But that's not how it works. Have you noticed how drawn we are to sin? Because it keeps giving us these little bitty temporal kinds of so-called happinesses or joy. We keep going back. We don't go back because it was all bad. We go back because some part of it had some 
happy, gratifying, pleasurable, joyful kind of thing. But Paul says, in all of these, there's this payout at the end. And that payout at the end is found in the end of Romans 6. Verse 21, he says, For what benefit were you deriving from the things which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. For the wages of sin is death. Here's the payout. That's why, remember, we talked about I, my joy has three components. It, it has a faith element. I think it, the thing I'm going after will de- de- deliver. It has a fruit element. If I'm a believer, it's growing in me. Joy is from Christ. But it has a future payout. That's what Christians are looking for. We're not going to get it on this earth. If you feel that you don't fit in here, good! This is not your home. That's why the Bible says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Not the President. Not the Congress. Not the authorities. Not the humans. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Paul said, we are strangers and aliens. The writer of the Hebrews says, we are exiles. And so, here, you've got these three. So, what's the alternative? Here, letter D is a Savior. That's how Paul entitles him. He calls him Messiah. We, we, we turn the word Christ into sort of a, I don't know, like a title that we really don't understand. It means deliverer, savior, Messiah, redeemer, rescuer, your redemption, your, the one who actually snatches you up out of your sin and, and, and brings you into heaven in God's presence. And so uh, Paul identifies himself here and in identifying, excuse me, identifies Jesus here, and in identifying him, says, "This is who he is. He's the Savior. That's we're slaves to the Savior, and that's where Paul's joy is." Now, the layout of Philippians, and I want to just do a little technical moment here, could be kind of like a, a walk up a mountain peak. When you enter the book of Philippians, you start walking uphill through Paul saying, man, we we find joy in serving. We find joy in the saints. We find joy in suffering. We find joy in our salvation. All the way to that point where Paul says, you know, my joy in Jesus is so much that I am hard-pressed from both sides. I don't know whether to pray that God will deliver me from this death sentence here in Rome and, and, and come out and serve the church again, or to just pray, Lord, just go ahead and let the death sentence come because to depart is to be with Jesus, and that's actually better. And so it all builds up to this crescendo where folks start saying, Paul, how would you get there? And he brings us to chapter 2, and he gives what... Andrew read today this beautiful picture of Jesus. And then after that crescendo, all of the things that come out of that, it's it's all of his so-thens and therefores that flow out. And so the, the way that Philippians flows is it flows up to this moment of glory in Jesus and out into our service for him. And it's a beautiful picture of Paul's joy. And so the joy is found in whom we serve. The first three, I'm going to tell you, They're all takers. Not only can they not give you lasting joy, they will take your joy. 
that, 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 that upfront little thing that you think, it never delivers at a level even close to what it's going to take from you afterwards. Never. Not even close. And so it's a hook. It's a trick. It's a, it's a, it's a scam. You're being scammed by sin and self and Satan to think this little payout, this little moment is worth actually what's going to be taken from you afterwards. Now, some of that taken happens immediately and some of it happens eternally. But it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a scam. Now, I want you to read the scam in print. So I'm going to take you to Jeremiah and let you read the scam in print and then move us toward sort of a conclusion of how we can start working on our joy today. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 2 because in Jeremiah... God is addressing a people who've lost their joy. They've deeply lost it. They've allowed their sinful lives to continue without repentance in such a way that their joy's just gone. Now, you may be there today. You may either as a Christian or as an unbeliever be here today and you're angry. You're burnt out. You're frustrated. And it may be that you've been somehow serving yourself or serving sin and ultimately tying yourself to serving Satan. And you keep getting these little bitty payouts of momentary, just little glimmers of kind of a joyful thing. But afterwards, it just keeps taking from you. And it's wearing you down and bringing you down. And you find yourself worse afterwards than beforehand. And so, they're takers. Only the Savior is a giver. And so he says it in Jeremiah 2. And, and it's said so well. I, I don't know any place in the Bible that makes it so clear. He says it right here. Verse 13, Jeremiah 2. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. What does that mean? It means God is the only giver. Please hear that. And the capacity of any human to truly give comes from God. God is the only giver. God is the only source. God has the infinite source of joy in Himself because God is perfect joy. And He has the infinite source inside Himself. So He is the fountain of the satisfying drink you're looking for. He is the fountain that relieves your thirst. He is the fountain that fills your heart and your mind and your soul. He is the fountain. And he says, here's the the thing my people have done. They have forsaken me, the fountain. And then he says, to hew or dig for themselves cisterns. Cisterns are not sources. They're storage containers. And the only thing you can do with a cistern is take water from a fountain and pour it in. Take water from a source and fill it up. Cisterns do not produce. Self, sin, Satan, they are the purveyors of cisterns. And the service of self is the digging of cisterns. The service of sin is the digging of cisterns. The service of Satan is the digging of cisterns. Storage facilities. But listen carefully. He describes these cisterns as cracked and broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is he saying? 
He's saying they're takers. God is the giver. And everything else is the taker. The sources that God gives us that are right and good are givers. Everything else is takers. And so what's happening here is the people have left God looking for joy. Looking for pleasure. Looking for satisfaction. And all they've done is they've built a system of takers that keep robbing them of the very thing they're looking for. And so God lays that out. And if you read Jeremiah carefully, you'll see that everything in Jeremiah 2 is put in the terms of servitude. So that the people are now enslaved to another nation rather than free the way that God set them up to be. Okay. The second thing I want to tell you about this joy being found in whom we serve. Back up a second, I'm sorry. The second thing I want to tell you about this is something that's said in Jeremiah 2. Look, look in Jeremiah 2, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? Here's the next thing about this joy. You will become like what you seek your joy in. If you seek your joy in self, you'll become more like your fallen self. If you find it in sin, you'll become more like sin. If you seek it in Satan, which is ultimately the source of these other two, you'll become more like him. You take on the nature of the place you seek joy. You take it on. That's why you wear an LSU jersey. You're taking on the nature, the appearance of the thing that you're seeking joy from. I'm not against being a fan, but I want us to see that these things are all around us. We mimic. When everybody fell in love with Miley Cyrus, they could sell Miley Cyrus clothes like crazy. Why? Because everybody, girls, were trying to look like Miley Cyrus. And they sold them like crazy. Walmart had them, that little flash thing that Walmart always does. They'd sell it like crazy for as long as it's popular. And it's just like, got every kind. We become like what we're trying to get our joy from. And he says, they walked after emptiness and became empty. Satan is the most joyless being in the universe. And he is a joy stealer. And he loves to make humans in his image. That's what he's after. He wants you to reflect his nature and his image rather than God's nature and God's image. And so what's going on in the fight for joy is a fight for masters. And if Jesus is your master, he will inject joy into your life. If sin, self, and Satan are your masters, they will detract joy from your life until finally they drain you utterly dry. So that comes to what's next. Joy is found in what we do. What we do. And uh, I think I can summarize these two quickly for you. What we do is the purpose for our existence. If the purpose for our existence is tied to sin, self, and Satan, at the end of our days, we say, you know, I've wasted my life. 
long before the wonderful book came out by John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life, I experienced the salvation of my uncle, which was a very similar story as to how John Piper wrote that book as a result of something that his father had encountered uh, after a revival and an elderly man had come to Christ. My uncle was a hard and harsh man. There was a kind of meanness to him that scared me. When I would spend the night at their house, I greatly feared him, not quite to the point of trembling because I didn't think he would physically harm me, but I knew that he might harm his children in my presence. And so it was hard. My mom witnessed to my uncle for many, many, many years, over and over. And finally, about six months before he died, my uncle was saved. And I remember him living out those six months, weeping and simply saying this, I have wasted my life. Everything he had done up to that point was meaningless and fruitless. And he saw it. And so, joy is found in what we do because at the end, we're going to stand and we're going to, we're going to assess either in heaven or hell before God, we're going to give an account. What did we do? Paul loves giving his life to Jesus because Jesus is in the satisfying and saving people business. And the thing that we bring to people is the most satisfying and the only saving thing that there is. And so Paul said, I am joyful because what I do brings true satisfaction to men, women, boys and girls all over the globe. And ultimately it saves their soul. And there's nothing better I could have done with my life than this meaningful thing called the gospel. I'm not going to waste my life. So Paul finds joy in what he does. That's why you'll see as we flesh some of that out, he's he's in jail and he's joyful because people are getting saved because he's in jail. And he can see that. And it matters to him. And then finally, um, bring it to an end and then maybe an illustration here. Joy is found in where we're headed. In Matthew 25, there is a story of of stewards who give an account. Sometimes called the parable of the talents. It's three people that are offered a stewardship. Two who use that stewardship well, one who doesn't. But the reward for the stewards is very interesting in the where they're headed. At the end of the journey, when the master comes in and holds his servants accountable, he meets them and he... He says something to them. Well done. Good. And faithful. What's he say next? Servant. He calls them slaves. And then he says, you've been in charge of a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. But the last thing he says is the most meaningful. He says, enter the joy of your master. Roll back, Peggy, to the master's list. One day we're going to enter the joy of one of these four. That's it. If you enter into eternity in the joy of yourself, it will be an empty, dead, meaningless joy. If you enter the joy of sin, it will be an empty, dead, meaningless joy. If you enter the joy of Satan, it will be an empty, dead, meaningless joy. There will be no joy in having served any of these three for your life. 
And so what you could say for those three on the day of the reward is this. Enter the joylessness of your Master. Now what's scary is many people are headed there. Grabbing hold of little bitty things here that they think are joys, but they're lies. And they're headed to what is the most joyless place. The place of eternal destruction. But enter the joy of your Master. That in that moment, the fullness... I was telling Virginia Dumika this morning as we were there at the bedside of Jimmy, I said, He now knows what we're all waiting for. Enter the joy. I don't know what God's joy is like, except that it is perfect and eternal and infinite. But if the few joys that God has given me in this life that were legitimate are any indication of an infinite, eternal, perfect joy, then entering the joy of my Master needs to be the biggest pursuit of my life. And I need to go after this joy hard, laying aside self, laying aside sin, denying the service of Satan, and pursuing this joy. When Bob Dylan wrote his song after what he termed his born-again experience, he said, You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You might be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion. You might live in a dome. You might own guns and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. But you have got to serve somebody. Paul said, you want to know who I am? My name is Paul. I am going to tell you with great joy that I'm a bondservant of the Savior Jesus. My brothers and sisters, my friends who are gathered this morning, if you could go out of here today and say that, it would be a key to your lasting joy. To say today, Jesus, I present myself to you as a slave for obedience. Because I know in you, I will find my joy. So here I am. Would you bow with me? My desire is for your joy. But your desire is also for your joy. And so my prayer is that your desire will right now turn to Jesus. 
And as Paul put it, identify yourself as a bondservant, a slave of Jesus. Happy to have a master who has nothing but good in store. Happy to have a master who is infinitely interested in your joy in such a way that he did this one thing to obtain it. You see, he didn't stand at a distance and try to pour joy out. He didn't stand at a distance and try to shout joy out. He didn't send it to you by UPS or FedEx. It's not on Amazon.com. This Savior stepped out of all the glories and comforts, beauties and perfections of heaven, and He took on a body just like yours. Human body. And He lived in that body with absolute perfect joy and obedience to His Master, His Father, the One He submitted His will to, God the Father. Though He was equal with God, He subjected Himself for your sake to live this life of perfection. And He always sought His joy in His Father and served Him. The result was that it took Him to a cross, a place where He died to get rid of all your joy killers, your sin, all the things that would keep you from joy, your separation from God, your guilt, your shame, your suffering, and your condemnation. And in doing all of that, He made joy available, accessible to you because He died for your sins. And the Bible says that He was raised from the dead on the third day. And as a result, He offers you from the right hand of God, seated there as King, a saving, infinite joy to forgive you of your sins and to be the source of your living waters from now through all of eternity. And I want to invite you to Him. I want to invite you to receive Him. Trust Him. Follow Him. That decision's made in a moment, but it's carried out through a lifetime. Some of you are here and you have made that decision, but somehow you're off track today. And you could not characterize your life as joyful. And you know that somehow you've been seeking it in yourself or in sin or even out of Satan. And you know it's made you miserable. Well, come to Jesus. Return to Him. He loves you. And offers you infinite joy. Come. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. Would you stand? Would you come? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at His wonderful face. And the